Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to two guests on the show today, Tom Hatton and John Ballinger. Tom is CEO of Clean Vapor, a radon and vapor intrusion mitigation company. He's been working in the environmental consulting and remediation industry for over 30 years. John Ballinger is the CEO at Clean Vapor, and he also owns a risk management and leadership development company. He's been working with Clean Vapor over the last three years. So John and Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Lisa. Thank you very much, Lisa. So, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing with Clean Vapor. Sure. My background is I was I have a science background, which is chemistry and physics. And then right out of school, I was fortunate enough to be on VA's very first vapor intrusion site, which is vapor intrusion is where chemicals that are in the ground come up into buildings and they're harmful for people. And I was able to develop a model, if you will, that would be predictive how those vapors would get into buildings. And then from there, I was drafted to be part of the first research team to figure out how radon was getting into houses in the United States, look at a bunch of houses and buildings and come up with a flow chart or a logic path for fixing these buildings. So that's how I got into this business. And one thing led to another. We started out, we were fortunate the United States Park Service was our very first client. And then we grew the business out of that to where we are today. Awesome. And John, what about you? So I'm aviation in the military. Left the military like a lot of military people do when they're retiring and trying to figure out what am I going to do with the next portion of my life. And it was kind of a natural progression to start a risk management company that focused on planes, trains, and automobiles and started that company and quickly saw that getting called in after the occurrence happened was really people-driven more than it was process-driven. There was a failure in someone following policy procedure or the leader in the organization wasn't communicating effectively in the organization. So that risk management company led me to start a professional, personal development, especially when it comes to leadership of the executives down to really what I would say middle management. And that's Tom and I's, Tom and I, we, we intersected about four years ago, actually, through our work with two nonprofits that were in dire straits, if you will. So before we dive into the culture that you have created at Clean Vapor, yeah, let's talk a little bit about exactly what you do, because we all have or we're supposed to have radon detectors in our house and stuff. But I don't know if people really know what it is and why it's so important that you're doing what you're doing with it. What is radon and why do you focus on it? There's two elements of focus to the company. One is naturally occurring radon and the other is man-made chemicals, which are carcinogen, which are at many of the manufacturing sites. And that's where the intersection probably for this audience is. Radon is naturally occurring. It's in all soils throughout the world. And it gets into your home based on the concentration that's in the soil below the home and how the home is constructed. Now, radon's hazardous because it's colorless, odorless, you can't detect it but it is the second leading cause of lung cancer in the United States. Every year, there's about 21,000 deaths annually because of radon, and it's probably the number one underplayed health crisis in the country 
mainly because Mother Nature is the culprit and there's not lobbying against Mother Nature. It's one of these hazards that just gets swept under the rug because there's no bad actor that you can point to and say, let me litigate against. And there's also a personal responsibility element where you, the homeowner, or you, the building owner, are responsible for doing the testing. People don't tend to look at it. And the third factor is, out of all the harmful risks in the United States, the federal government only spends $7.9 million in education to tell people about radon. And when we encounter people, usually after they've got lung cancer, and the question always is, why didn't somebody tell me about this? And that, we put on as our mission to educate the extent we can as a small company. And that pretty much brings it back to why you started the company in the first place. Is that right? Yeah, what happened was we... I, my wife, Kristen, and I, we were just married, and we realized that there was a family member who was suffering from cancer, and we realized that there was probably at that time, maybe less than 25 or 30 people in the entire country who actually knew how to diagnose buildings and correct them correctly, and we realized that we could, if we did what we did, science-based practices, because what we did was a little bit different. We took a scientific approach to evaluating homes and buildings. And when the government started collecting statistics on the results of correcting these homes, we found out that we had the best results out of any company. In other words, the lowest rate on a level is post mitigation. And we decided that the thing to do is since we had a corner on this technology is that we would use it to mitigate as many homes as we could and take people out of the risk of getting lung cancer. And that's a terrible death. I've met these people on oxygen candles and essentially they suffocate to death. It's terrible. And I'm very passionate that it was one of the saddest, most overlooked health crisis in the country. So it sounds like you have a really strong mission, which is important when you're coming to building a company culture. Let's start talking about that. First of all, what prompted you to look for someone else to help you build and direct the company culture, which led you to finding John? So that really came out of the other side of the business, which it's not really the other side, it's just a different focus which is the chemical vapor and season part. We had grown that business and we had worked, say, Fortune 1000 companies. But as the name word got out about clean vapor and there was a growing need, large consulting engineering world, we started working for Fortune 100s and now we're in, we came in for 500s and then the 100s. And we were blessed enough to have an opportunity with a very large aerospace manufacturer. And the company had grown at that point, and I'm very technically oriented and have one type of culture, which is based on respect and trust and the expectation that you ask somebody to do something that they're going to carry forward with the same level of commitment that you have. Now, that's not a reality. And as the company was growing, I was giving A-plus technical support to our clients, but the other part of it, the installation part, the field services were developing their own culture. And I could equate the company almost like a farm without a farmer, where you have different segments, cows and chickens too, or whatever they want. And we acquired this client and the person who, were, who made this all possible said on the phone to me, said, time to saddle up. 
And I knew exactly what that meant, is that the entire company needed to get harmonized with one culture, which is a culture of excellence to match our technical services. And John and I were working on the nonprofit at that point, which got lassoed over into a bad corner. And John said, you need to, right? And I said, yeah, but I don't know if I can afford you. And he wrote, I wrote a number and said, I'll do this for a year. And he wrote it on a sticky and turned it over. And I'm like, yeah, we could do that. So he looked at the company and the company was running, it was producing products, but internally it was running like when you throw sneakers into your dryer and they're all bouncing around. And, but we couldn't scale the company and have all this bouncing around because it would just get worse. And then we would lose the opportunity to serve a tremendous aerospace manufacturer. And that's mm. where we evaluated the company and really found out how out of balance it was. And that's where John started putting in plans and he and I and Kristen worked together very intently to figure out how we were gonna fix this thing so we could give A plus service to our clients across the world. Awesome. So John, when you came into the company, what what did you find and what did you how did you prioritize your starting point? Tom developed a system. I had developed a system that I used before even stepping foot inside the company by giving a series of tests. And that first test would be the Myers-Briggs test. And it, ge- it gave me some insight to who I was getting ready to talk to. And I have administered the test so many times that I don't even need to have a picture or meet the person. I can read the test results and walk into a room. And if there's 10 people in a room with 10 tests, I could tell you which 10 belong, which test belongs to those 10 people. And so I took, everyone took the test. I went to the, I went to three different locations, walked in, talking to people and quickly realized through the process of the test and a risk assessment that I've developed over the last number of years, that 50% of the people in companies, and this is a general statistic over the last 17 years, are in positions they're not suited for. I call them they're not wired for that position. They migrate to that position for one reason or another, or as most companies do, they just hire someone and put them in that position and hope they swim, but maybe they sink. Uh, then they know they do not know what to do with them once they start sinking. I went in with that personality profile test, with that risk assessment, gave it back to Tom and Kristen and said, here's what we need to do and here's how we need to start. And I think there were roughly 14 people when we started and we shaved it down to three. Wow. Which is tough because you're rebuilding. And I talk about you're remodeling the house while you're living in the house while you're growing too. And all that's difficult. And I tell the business owner, this is going to be very difficult because some of these relationships that you've had with these employees are years and years long, but they don't meet the criteria that we need to take it to the next level in this company. And so we start narrowing it down and then rebuilding it at the same time we're removing personnel. Then we're having to select people because I take the word H-I-R-E out of the equation and say, we don't hire people. We select people that are going to be on our team, much like a professional team does. So when you went from 14 to three, what was, what did those 11 people have not have, or what were they missing 
as you saw the future growth of the company? And what did those other three have that you felt value enough to keep? I would say the first was respect. One of the things that I learned early on doing this, you may not always agree with the owner and you may have a voice to be able to go to the owners and state your opinions, but by all means, always respect the owner. And I saw a lack of respect in a lot of areas and the three, even though they still need fine-tuned, there was still a level of respect that they had that the others didn't. They were more blasé. We don't care. Just give us our paycheck. Mm. I want to add something to that, too. What coincided with this was COVID. Oh, yeah. And what happened was all of a sudden we were locked out of our work sites because of COVID. And, and so what we decided to do is we had a we wanted to take that opportunity and implement as well as professional development. So we selected courses, modules, things for people to do. And the weirdest thing happened was we were paying for their time. We were paying for the course. And people would just come up and resign one at a time going, this is it for me. And I'm like, this is mind blowing. Like, Anytime anybody's given me an opportunity to improve myself and they were paying for it and my time, I would be all over it. But I found out that there was a certain type of employee that wasn't really interested in self-advancement. And they, one by one, took themselves out of the equation. And then we were able, because there's a lot of people idle at home because of COVID, we were able to take our time and select the next level of employee as replacements. And that's when things really started coming together because we had, John was steering the culture, I was steering the technical side of things. And I really um, wanted to get back to what the company was when it was small, where I was selecting people and there was enough personal time that if the culture didn't work, it just wasn't gonna work. And I think that's where the whole scaling thing came on. But there was a lot of intentionality in how we went about that, how we we're going to replace people, what the job tasks were. And we really wanted people who had um, not just technical skills, but a good hearts as people. They like you care for the person you're working with. And what happened was. I started hearing about these guys being over at their co-workers house for a barbecue, helping each other put new brakes on their cars. And this cohesiveness started developing within the company. And I think that's what, that is what helps separate us out. And we get great feedback from our clients that said, hey, I work with your guys at a time. They work hard, they go out to dinner, they joke around, and they go back to the hotel. And, they show up for work nice and sober and inspired the next morning. So like, yeah, at least I, I would add, let me just put a little cherry on top of this for Tom and Kristen, because it's tough to make that decision to remodel the house while the house is growing and building and, right. and they did that. And what happened even during COVID and the great resignation is the company went from three and it's standing at 34 right now during all that. 
Wow. And I think what's occurring to me, and I think what my listeners are picking up on, is there's so many lessons here. Number one, you have a CEO who's running a successful company, but realizes that there's a part that he's missing where he has good technical skills, but not the people skills. So there's that awareness that sometimes the signs are there that we have to make those difficult decisions. And then you have 14 people that were probably really good at what they did, but there wasn't a cohesive team. So then we have to make the difficult decisions to get the people on the bus that are no longer a fit or off the bus that are no longer a fit for that bus, and then be willing to turn over what you're not good at to somebody who is good at it and start to make that whole thing. And then just what you just said with going from three people to now 34 people in this harmony and these relationships, that it's not a change that happened overnight, but because you were willing to do all the cleanup work beforehand, now you're starting to see the results of all the work that you put into it. Yeah. And there's, there's another, there's two employees that, that I want to point this out. These guys were tremendous people. I liked them a lot. They were good at what they did, but what we were doing was not their passion. And I knew that. And one of the guys, we fly to some of our job sites and he was a pilot, but he also had a physics degree and he was really good as a technical scientist out in the field, but he wanted to become a bush pilot in Alaska. And I had some connections there and I knew of a job opening and I called the director of that, of that air transport company. And I said, hey, I have a guy who works for me. He's a tremendous guy, but he's always wanted to be a pilot in Alaska. Would you interview him? And I set that up and he left and there was another guy with a very similar situation and these guys did leave Clean Vapor. I lost valuable employees. Right now, we have the office in Charlotte. One guy actually went from being a bush pilot to an airline pilot. And when he lays over here, he's like, Tom, are you available? Can you run down to the airport? We can grab lunch or dinner. And we have a great relationship. And I actually feel happy about because he's doing something that he's passionate about. And we only go through life once. That's right. why it's so important that we spend our best years seated in what we are crafted to do. And that's what I so, want. Like you're here, I want you to be wired to do what we're doing and enjoy what you're doing. And really paying attention to what that passion is in people so that you're making sure that you have the right people on. And again, it's people might be saying that, oh, these employees, they just want to come and they just want a paycheck. And how are they going to be passionate about the thing that we're manufacturing? But really finding out that that aspect of the mission that they can be passionate about. So let's, John, let's go back to you as far as some of the things that you have focused on with the culture there and how you found these the rest of the people to join the team to get it up to the number you are now. I would say one afternoon I'm sitting watching. No, I'm not watching. I'm listening to the TV and I hear the words as I'm working on my computer, the San Francisco 49ers select. And it was the draft. And it just, I stopped typing. I stopped writing. And I said, if the professional athletes select and the college have recruiters and select, why aren't business owners using that same platform of spending time selecting someone, not just throwing out a 
uh, a job description on Indeed or LinkedIn, why aren't we spending time selecting that person? We have a three-stage process that we've developed where we take someone, we bring them in, we bring them in at the level that they would be working with, so like the manager, the director, and do interviews. And until it gets, and they take a series of tests, so they're taking emotional intelligence test, they're taking working genius test, they're taking a Myers-Briggs test, and we're finding out who these people are and the job description that we want them to accomplish and seeing, does that person match this job description? And it doesn't matter if they've been doing it at another job when they get to us. I sat on an airplane next to a gentleman coming from New York to Atlanta, and I said, is home Atlanta? And he said, no, home's getting ready to be Florida. I'm retiring. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, what did you do? And he said, I worked for the New York Transit Authority for 40 years. I said, man, did you love that? He said, I hated every day of it. And so I'm thinking, who would want to hate going to work for 40 years every day? So the team that is here now, they love what they do and the position they're in, and they're actually wired developed for that position, which makes the team work together, much like a professional team. So when people are going through your hiring process with all of these assessments and in-depth discussions and tools that you're using, what does that look like? How long does it take you to bring someone on board? I would say the most recent person that we brought on board, we started recruiting six months out. Mm. And this person had been in the industry. Tom, how long had, is this? He's a 20 plus year person in the industry. And he's not gonna gonna just move. Yeah, he's not gonna just move, Lisa. It is an in-depth, I call it a chess piece. He's a chess piece on this board to ensure that we are putting the right chess piece in place so that it elevates the company. And he fits the culture, he fits the people, Tom and Kristen and I will take the person out. I'll meet with spouses. I think it's extremely important. When we select someone, we're not just selecting them. We're bringing their family in as well. And I think that's really important to know. I know in a lot of my programs, I encourage people to hire more slowly and fire more quickly than they think they need to. From a personal standpoint, when my husband took the job that he's in now, He went through the same thing. I think there was eight interviews. It was during COVID, so it was online for the most part. Six hours of personality tests because his company did the same thing. They wanted to make absolutely sure that they were bringing in the right person. And I will tell you, it's a match made in heaven. And the same thing what you saw with that guy on the plane being miserable for 40 years. My husband was miserable for at least the last 10 but he didn't think that he had a choice in the matter. And he was like, who's gonna hire me? I'm 59 years old. But because the company that he's with now put into some of those processes that you have done, and it took Scott, he was on pins and needles for a couple months, but it was such a relief when he got the offer. And like I said, it's a when you really take the time, you're saving yourself so much hassle and costs and turnover. It's actually risk management at its finest because you don't have DOL issues, EOC issues. 
You don't have issues with culture, with what I call water cooler talk, mealy mouthing. When you put a team together that wants to work cohesively and the right person's in the right seat, it does so much for risk management in the company. It does. And I'm going to give you an example. Right on the other side of this wall is six guys meeting in a conference room. And when I came in this morning, because there's glass surrounding that conference room, I waved it up all the body language as, as positive. And they're in there solving some really difficult stuff, but they're working together and parsing out responsibilities. And it's comfortable and it's happy. And one of the things as a business owner, I got to a point in my life, it's like, I don't want to come to work at my own business and ever work with anybody I don't want to work with ever again. And by creating a culture of supportiveness, and that doesn't mean that everybody thinks the same, but there is this care that goes along for your work person. And if somebody's having a difficulty in a particular sector of what their task is, that person's going to come alongside them, teach them, elevate them. But it's not something that you have to tell them to do. It's something that is natural to who they are. And when you start putting multiples of that together, it's when things start happening in a positive manner. Yeah. And you just mentioned the body language. You can feel culture. When you walk into an organization, you can feel if people like working there, if they don't like working there, if you're seeing that positive body language, those smiles, people are getting along getting along together, then even through the interview process, some a candidate coming through is going to be like, ooh, this is a company I want to work for versus the body language of hiding, don't look at me. <laughs> Yeah, we, well, we had interviewed an, employee, interviewed an employee at one time, and he had gone through several interviews, and I think it was maybe the second in-person interview, and it was in the conference room, and he was walking out, and he saw one of our employees, and he starts up a conversation, because I guess they had played on some soccer for years ago together. He said, hey, how do you like working here? And I said, I love it. I like being here. And I overheard this. He said, if my arm ever gets cut, it will bleed clean they can do it. And wow. it's like, wow. That's how yeah. this guy feels about the company. Yep. And to put a, another cherry on top of that, as you're working with these the selection process that we've put in place, I will then, after they've been here for 90 days, just randomly call them and say, how's it going? And I did this recently with a young man. And he said, Everything that you all said, you all being the leaders, Tom, Chris, and I, when it ultimately gets to us, everything you've said is exactly what happens inside this company. And I've said to a lot of the folks that I am selecting going through the interview process, if we tell you something through this process that doesn't materialize to be true after you've selected us to, then we've diminished trust. And the second, so we talk about a culture of care a lot. That's what we call it. We've got to, a culture of care, but we also talk about trust an enormous amount. And that's the second ingredient in building a team. And the book, The Speed of Trust, is something that everybody in the company, hand the book, read this, because we must trust each other implicitly. And after I got through reading your book, Lisa, Tom handed it to me, said, you need to read this. I started looking and just checking off everything that I have worked on for 17 years to get companies to do is in that book when it comes to building a culture and the, you went it, you went it with one direction. I went it with, cause I want to minimize risk 
and the company. And the way you minimize an important risk is building that culture of people that love doing what they're doing every day. And you don't have to look over your shoulder saying, who's going to sue me next? Exactly. As we start to get to the end of our time together, I want to find out from you, Tom, what is your biggest lesson as the the owner the, of Clean Vapor from your process? And then John, what are your best tips for somebody who is looking to turn around the culture in the way that you did at Clean Vapor? Tom, I'm going to start with you and you can add on to lessons too. Yeah, I think the biggest part of it is if you're a business owner, don't ignore the signs that your company is getting out of balance and don't think that just because what you do as the owner is perceived as an excellent product that you can compensate for a lack of a cohesive company and being honest and addressing that and then the other part of it is we were fortunate. John and I have a lot of similar interests. We have a similar value system and we met at a and what I've got to call it was the God-inspired event, and it worked out really well. And I think that getting that help that you need at a critical time is so important because what we're seeing, I think, is the full-blown crop of the means generation that started in the 70s. We're two generations into thinking more about ourselves than we are our fellow people. And it's affected parenting. And we're not only being business leaders, like would be in my parents' generation, but we're also, there's this growing of people that business owners are now responsible for to help them through things that maybe they should have done earlier in life. And we have to recognize that it's not our generation, it's not our parents' generation, but we're merging multiple levels of people on multiple views of life. And we have to put that all together to have a cohesive company and workforce. And there's a lot that goes into that. And John is very good at assessing that and figuring out how we're going to merge Gen Xers with 50-year-old engineers who are very focused in the politics. Okay, awesome. And I do really like your analogy of the tennis shoes in the dryer when you're figuring off that your company's out of balance. That was really visual and made a lot of sense. <laughs> All right, and John? I would say that a business owner or leader needs to first self-assess themselves and know what their limits are. Because a lot of business owners that I go in will not be honest with themselves and say the words, that is not my strength. I can't do that. I need to be able to go do this, which is why I started the company. And I need to find someone that I can learn to trust, has the same value systems, and understands where we need to go as an organization. Communication, Tom and I, Kristen, we communicate a lot in a lot of different ways, whether it's emails, phone calls, messages, and things like that. And we're getting so good at it that we will think about things without even talking and get on calls and say, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. And it really flows well when you start trusting each other and you know how each other thinks. But the critical piece is start a selection process, especially with your top leadership down the middle management. Because once you create that culture, 
your middle management will start that process on down into the company. And it becomes a culture where everyone understands, oh, we selected, we were selected, but we also selected this company because we love the culture inside this company. Absolutely. All right. And if any listeners wanted to continue the conversation with you, Tom, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? And then I'll go to you, John. I think the best way to get a hold of me is sending an email. And that email is thatcleanpaper.com or then John probably directly to your email. I think that's the way to go if they want to get in touch with you. Yeah, so I'm Jay Ballinger, B-A-L-I-N-G-E-R, at Clean Vapor. So anyone that wants to send an email to Tom and I, we're happy to respond, jump on a call, and talk about what it's like to go from where we were to where we went to, now to where we are. Probably a good idea to copy both of us, because probably by this time, this podcast airs, or maybe on a project in Spain. So copy he has the cleanvapor.com and then John, and then one of us will figure out how to get back to you in a time limit. Okay, awesome. It has been an absolute pleasure having both of you on the show today. Thanks again so much for joining me. Thank you for Thanks, having Lisa. us. It's been a pleasure. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time.